as I mentioned last week, just to kind of catch us up to speed, I don't have time to go back to the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts and walk us up to where we have come up to this point. Suffice it to say, we've got podcasts, you can go listen to those, but chapter 13 and beyond tells the the famous missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, tells that story, the very journeys that are mapped out in the back of most of our Bibles. Uh, If you were around a few weeks ago, you might remember some of the highlights from that first journey, the, the conversion story of Sergius Paulus, the most noble official on the island of Cyprus, the striking blind of Elymas the magician who sought to derail the advancement of the gospel, Paul's preaching in the Jewish synagogues as well as the marketplaces of pagan ideology, Um, the multitudes of people coming to faith in Christ, which we see throughout the book of Acts, even before chapter 13, amidst amidst the persecution and and mistreatment of Paul and his friends, Paul even surviving a near-death experience on one occasion. This morning, we find ourselves right in the heart of Paul's second missionary journey, a journey with a crazy highlight reel of its own, and we'll see that as we continue on. Last week, we saw Timothy added to the team, a team being led westward by the sovereign God right into Europe. We've already seen a core group gathering of a new church plant in the city of Philippi, the first Christian church on European soil, which is actually kind of crazy to to think about in terms of redemptive history. You have a rich young lady and her friends going back to last week, a recently demon-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar jailer forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ a beautiful display of the grace of God, a grace big enough to rescue the religious and content, a grace big enough to rescue the tormented and oppressed, a grace big enough to rescue the hopeless and despairing. Picking up where we left off last week, Paul and company having been run out of the city of Philippi as they've been run out of many cities and towns up to this point. Verse one tells us in chapter 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. One of the things I think when we work through the book of Acts, we fail to realize you read through a sentence and, and, and we immediately think, oh, that must've been the next day that that happened, right? Like time just passed by like that. It was a Sunday, Paul and his friends were in Philippi and then they woke up Monday and they were in Thessalonica. But that's not how it worked. Um, Thessalonica would have been roughly a, a hundred miles southwest of Philippi. We're talking roughly a three-day journey for the apostle Paul and his companions. Thessalonica was an incredibly important seaport, the second largest city in Greece at the time, roughly a population of about 200,000 people, which is just a little less than the population of Fayette and Coweta counties combined today. And verse two tells us, and Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. As Paul's been known to do, he, he first goes into the Jewish synagogue reasoning from the Old Testament that Jesus is the promised Messiah. It's interesting to me that, that Luke chooses to include a number of descriptors here pertaining to the proclamation of the gospel in a way that we haven't seen before. So he throws out the words reasoned and explaining and proving and saying. This is the the first time, in fact, that that Luke uses the word reasoned in the book of Acts. That word translated reasoned in many of our Bibles means to get a conclusion across. It's as though Paul's basically seeking 
to clearly articulate his thesis on the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that his conclusion is, is not only evident to, but embraced by his audience. Notice a couple of things here. His attempt, first of all, to get his conclusion across is ultimately rooted in the scriptures. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That with, with some of the more um, biblically illiterate crowds, we've talked about this before, Paul adapts his approach by first and foremost proclaiming this God of creation and common grace and then pointing from there to Jesus Christ. But anytime there's any sort of biblical foundation, Paul reasons from the scriptures, just like we see him doing here. Notice also what Paul's attempt to reason from the scriptures involves. It says, he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That word translated explaining in many of our Bibles can also be translated opening. It's the same exact word Luke uses in his gospel account, which by the way is the prequel to the book of Acts, to describe what the resurrected Jesus did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus as he opened the scriptures to them, interpreting to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. That word translated proving in verse three can also be translated to set before. And so here you have Paul explaining and proving, opening and setting before them as if it was a buffet, a meal, the necessity of the promised Messiah's suffering death and resurrection, and then connecting the dots for them that the promised Messiah is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, that the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith are one and the same. They're not to be distinguished or divorced from one another. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. If you remember, if you were around at this point in the series, we saw Philip do this with the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter eight with a particular passage of scripture that the eunuch in God's providence happened to be sitting with and reading and along came Philip and showed how that passage found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Here in Acts chapter 17, we, we don't get as many details, right? It's very vague, very generalized. And so uh, I wanna bring us back to something that we've talked about as a church before, knowing that there are a likely uh, a number of people in a crowd like this who are new to our church and believing that it never hurts to reiterate things pertaining to biblical interpretation. I think a passage like this morning's passage, Acts chapter 17, at least these first few verses, present us with the question, how can we do what Jesus did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? How can we do what Philip did with, with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight? How can we do what Paul does here with the, the Jewish people of Thessalonica? Well, I think we have it a little bit easier to be honest with you because we now have the New Testament, which makes it a little bit more simplified in terms of showing people the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection. We can take people to the gospel accounts themselves and show the historicity of Jesus' crucifixion and empty tomb. We can take people to Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 showing the necessity of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. We can take them to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's argument for the necessity of Jesus' resurrection without which we would still be in our sins, our faith futile. But... At the same time, we can also do exactly what Jesus and Philip and Paul all did. We can take people to the Old Testament too. 
pointing to the, the various prophecies that find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, 15, the first promise of the gospel. God declared that an offspring of Eve would come and heroically crush the serpent Satan's head. And Jesus did just that at Calvary, delivering the death blow to the devil of hell and putting him to open shame, Colossians 2 tells us. Isaiah 53, which is the very chapter of the Bible that Philip sat with the Ethiopian eunuch and helped to make sense of. That chapter, Isaiah 53, declares that the Messiah would take on human flesh and die and suffer on behalf of sinners, humiliated, despised, rejected, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Jesus Christ, we're told, not only took on flesh, but also the sins of his people in his body on the tree. The spotless lamb of God led to the slaughter. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Psalm 22:16 16 declares that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet, written hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, fulfilled in the hanging of Jesus Christ on a Roman splintered wooden cross. Psalm 1610 declares that God would not let his holy one see corruption, a promise fulfilled in the bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. Those are just a handful of the Old Testament prophecies that we can point people to, that we can use to explain and prove the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection in declaring that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the promised Messiah. And then there are a number of Old Testament people, offices, events, and institutions foreshadowing the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, we've talked about this before if you've been around, that Jesus is the greater Adam, that unlike Adam who failed his test in his garden of Eden and rebelled against God, Jesus passed his test in his garden of Gethsemane and obeyed God fully and perfectly to the point of death, Philippians 2. That Jesus is the greater Abraham. God called Abraham to leave his home and go to a place where he would become the father of many nations. Jesus was called to leave his home and enter the slums of human history to redeem the nations. That Jesus is the greater Moses who functions as the mediator between God and his people and establishes a covenant not with tablets of stone, but with his blood, the author of Hebrews tells us. That Jesus is the greater David, slaying the giants of sin and death through his life, death, and resurrection, the eternal king over God's people. He's the greater Jonah. Jonah may have remained in the belly of the fish for three days, but Jesus remained in the belly of the earth for three days before rising in victory over sin and death. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb, innocent, without blemish or spot, slain so that the angel of death might pass over you and me. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the prophets of old. They declared over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. Jesus showed up on the scene declaring, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, I am the Lord. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood. Unlike the priests of old who, who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, Jesus is both priest and sacrifice, offering himself as the once for all sacrifice for sinners like you and me. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament monarchy, which showed that even the greatest kings throughout redemptive history must at some point die. But not Jesus, though he died, he's the king of kings whose kingdom shall never end. He's the true tabernacle, temple, light, bread, vine, and on and on and on we could go. Those are just a handful of, of the Old Testament people and offices and institutions and events that help in explaining and proving the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection in declaring that Jesus is the Christ. Those are just a couple of ways 
that we can point to Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that we read in our Old Testament. I've said it before, if you've never read through, picked up a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, you really should. One, it might make you weep even more than the Bible you hold in your hands right now, just the, the, the language that it uses to tell this beautiful story of redemptive history. And we have copies in the back. You're welcome to grab one of those on your way out. If you're like, been there, done that, got the Sally Lloyd-Jones t-shirt, what do you got for me? There's another option for all of us grown-ups who are a little bit too mature for the Jesus Storybook Bible. God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts, another great resource to grab hold of that kind of walks through and helps us to see Christ in all of Scripture. And then in-house for us, if, if you weren't around, back in the Hebrews series as a way of setting the stage for our time in the book of Hebrews, I preached a sermon entitled A Heart Set Ablaze. You can go to our website and type into the search query that phrase, A Heart Set Ablaze, and it should bring up a sermon linked to that title, which gets after so much more than I was able to over the course of the last seven or eight minutes. Kind of unpack that a little bit more fully in, in a more robust fashion. But coming back to, to Acts chapter 17, Paul reasons from the scriptures with his audience for the better part of three synagogue gatherings. And what that tells me is, and you know this, that there are times in which God may call us to a multi-conversation presentation of the gospel. Right? There, there are certainly times where God may call us to move towards someone and in one single interaction, we may have an opportunity to present the gospel to them, just like Philip with the Ethiopian unit going back to Acts chapter 8. But there are other times, particularly with those that we share the workplace with, that we share a neighborhood with, that we share a bloodline with. There are other times when the Spirit might lead us to evangelize through an ongoing dialogue with other people. Verse four tells us, and some of them, in response to Paul's preaching, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Again, we, we see great diversity among those coming to faith, right? Jews and Greeks, men and women, noble and common. Another reminder that salvation is of the Lord. It's all of grace, that, that God is happy to flex the muscles of his grace and mercy in the rescue of all kinds of people. But, verse five tells us, and we've seen this before in the book of Acts, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, that's the riffraff of the community, by the way, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Continue to see the, the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people as they seek to attack Paul and his friends out of jealousy forming a mob and attacking the home of Jason, who's been housing Paul and his friends during their stay in the city. So that verse six tells us, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus how true are those words? These men have turned the world upside down, right? That's the book of Acts, right? As I said before, a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God turning the world upside down for the glory of Christ. That's what Jesus does, right? He turns the thinking of the world upside down on its head. Look no further than the Beatitudes, 
the blessed are statements of Matthew 5 that launched Jesus into his Sermon on the Mount. Right? The world says, esteem yourself, find the good within. At worst, you're spiritually middle class. Jesus comes along and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world says, hide behind a pasted smile, a religious veneer, and you'll be better for it. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The world says, trample others on your way to the top. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those are just a few examples, by the way, from the very mouth of the Messiah himself. Of course. Of course, the status quo of society is gonna be flipped upside down on its head when society has a collision with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which helps to explain a few things in the book of Acts, helps to explain the religious leaders losing their power and authority. We've seen that over and over again, right? Helps to explain the overnight bankruptcy of a fortune-telling business in the city of Philippi, We haven't even gotten to people burning their magic arts books in a citywide bonfire in Ephesus. Chapter 19 will be there soon enough. That's a crazy story. Or the rioting of Demetrius the silversmith whose business of making shrines to Greek gods experiences immediate threat, immediate threat when the gospel comes to town. The reality is the gospel's not good news to everyone. In the city of Thessalonica, there's a fighting tooth and nail to cling, to hang on to the status quo, the right side up way of the world. Comedian Stephen Colbert, in a commencement speech to Princeton graduates, once said this. He once said, and again, Princeton graduates, keep in mind, he says, you can change the world, but please don't do that, okay? Some of us like the way things are going right now. I remember, and this might be crazy to even consider could be true, but back in student ministry days, not just one parent, I had multiple parents come up to me and say, I want you to point my kids to Jesus. Make no mistake about that. But please don't radicalize them. Please don't turn their world so upside down that they do crazy things like go overseas on global mission trips, maybe even live overseas at some point. Like, I've got plans and dreams for them. We've been talking about this for years, a career path, an education path. So if you could point them to Jesus, but without saying it, if, if this Jesus could not really flip their lives upside down on its head, if Jesus could just kind of function as a slice of the pie along with everything else, so that he's more life-enhancing rather than life-transforming, that'd be really great. The gospel, and this will tweet, by the way, the gospel is the greatest threat the world has ever known. Hands down. The gospel is the greatest threat the world has ever known. It threatened, the gospel threatens our notions of human goodness as Jesus shows up and says, you're so bad I had to die for you. The gospel threatens our veneer of religiosity. The gospel threatens our own judicial autonomy, just like our first parents in the garden so long ago. The gospel threatens our comfort and convenience. The gospel threatens our abundance. When the gospel comes to town, it it rattles the notion that we could be saved from our sin and yet live as our own sovereign. Because the gospel declares Jesus to be both savior and king. 
When the gospel comes to town, it rattles the notion that we can add the one true God to a pantheon of gods, continuing to worship our kids and our careers and our money because the gospel declares Jesus to be the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one seated on the throne. We can't have the upside down way of the gospel and the right side up way of the world. It doesn't work like that. To gain the world is to lose our soul. But... And that's one of the most glorious words in the Bible, by the way, right? You see that in a lot of Paul's letters. I got some really bad news for you. But Christ, here's the good news. Seen it over and over again throughout the book of Acts. The way of the gospel is the way of true freedom and joy. It's the better way, right? Go back and look through the book of Acts and notice the stark contrast It's the religious leaders who are living for their own self-preservation and comfort and power and control. And what does it get them? Jealousy and rage, right? Over and over again. We see it in this morning's passage. The, The same things that you and I oftentimes experience when we ourselves try to hang on to our comfort, to our power, to our control. They're miserable over and over again. It's a recurring theme. Meanwhile, It's the apostles who are seen over and over and over again rejoicing, even in the midst of imprisonments and beatings. It's the ones in shackles who are the ones who are truly free in the book of Acts. Isn't that crazy? It's the upside down nature of the gospel. It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. I think the question for all of us, myself included this morning, is this. Do we truly believe that the way of the gospel is the better way? Do we truly believe that? Maybe a more intense question, a more intense way to word it based on the language of Acts 17. Are we happy for God to turn our lives and our families and our cities upside down with his reorienting gospel, trusting that his way is the better way? Or will we say with Stephen Colbert and the Thessalonian Jews, Please don't do that, okay? Even if it might be for my good, even if it might be for your glory, I prefer the status quo, God. There's something better. The upside down way of the kingdom of God is better. Like, better to lose your proverbial fortune telling business and gain Christ. Better to burn your proverbial magic arts books and gain Christ. That's what the book of Acts is declaring. We're told that Jason and the brothers, as we've seen over and over again, they're brought under several accusations, the worst being their belief in and declaration of a king other than Caesar. It's a dangerous declaration. King Jesus, which again does in fact reveal that Paul's message is not that of Jesus as savior apart from Jesus as king, that the two go hand in hand. Try as we may in our stories of coming to Christ, we cannot divorce his salvation from his lordship. If Jesus is to be our savior, he must be our king. Verse eight goes on to tell us that the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they they let them go. Jason and the brothers, they ultimately post a form of bond for Paul and Silas as a way of ensuring that these two men won't be any more trouble. And, And Paul and his friends, 
move on to what Luke describes as a more noble community. So now you're gonna see the contrast between this crowd in Thessalonica and this crowd in Berea. Look at verse 10. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Perhaps if you've been around the church for a significant period of time, maybe you've heard the phrase a good Berean. You wanna be a good Berean? As being associated with a Christian who's committed to faithfully examining the scriptures not just taking the best of preachers at their word. And there are certainly some principles to glean from these verses pertaining to the Christian's handling of the Bible. We'll get there in just a second. But, but notice something. Notice that in context, this has less to do with a Christian's handling of his or her Bible and more to do with a non-Christian's response to the gospel. We're told that the Berean Jews received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed. That this passage is not first and foremost a believer's guide to how to listen to preaching or how to study the Bible. It's a declaration that the Berean Jews were more noble than the Thessalonian Jews in not rejecting the gospel, but receiving the gospel. Now, that being said, there's certainly a few things that those of us Christians can glean from a passage like this. Three things that, that make up noble interaction with the word of God and the gospel of God, namely receiving, examining, and responding. Notice first, they received the word with all eagerness. They, they, they brought an expectancy into the assembly a humble willingness and openness to, to receive the truth. And, and not just an expectant hunger for God's word, but an eager receiving of the gospel as the heart and soul of the apostle Paul's preaching. That as imperfect as preaching pastors like, like me may be, the question begs to be answered, do you bring an expectancy into the assembly of God's people? An eagerness to receive the gospel yet again. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This, of course, requires a belief in the authority of Scripture, a belief in the necessity of Scripture, a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture, a belief in the clarity of Scripture, it also requires a love for the centrality of the gospel, right? A low view of the, the word of God and the, the gospel of God will inevitably lead to a low view of preaching, particularly when those sermons are tethered to the word of God and centered on the gospel. Secondly, notice that there is this examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Not, not simply living off of the, the benefits of the synagogue sermon for the next seven days, not depending solely on the priest to dispense truth, rather a daily practice and commitment to examining the scriptures, a testing of what Paul says against the supreme authority of God's word. And, and not in an, an anti-authoritarian sort of way. Let, let me just pause for a second and say, I've, 
I've encountered people along the way who, in the name of being a good Berean, would reject any sense of authority apart from the scriptures, which is honestly quite mind-boggling to me because the, the very idea of being a good Berean requires an examining of the scriptures, and you can't examine the scriptures without examining 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5, which talk about the offices of elder and deacon, this God-instituted authority as it pertains to the leadership of the church. And you can't examine the scriptures without looking at passages like Romans 13, which talk about the governing authorities and our submission to them when they don't forbid us to do things that God requires or require us to do things that God forbids. I think to, to be a good Berean, you certainly have to acknowledge the supreme authority of Scripture and at the same time acknowledge that God has established other forms of authority that are undoubtedly subservient to Scripture. That being said, I want you guys and those who aren't here who may engage this podcast to know how I approach the scriptures in preaching personally as a way of fostering a culture of trust between pastor and flock. And I can't think of a better way to say it than how John Piper's already said it. So his quote speaks for me up on the screen. He says this, and I would say this to you. I try to preach in such a way that anything you learn will be rooted directly in the Bible. I point to chapter and verse because if I don't, the source of my thoughts becomes hazy and my authority as a minister of the word diminishes I want the building block of your system of doctrine to be specific statements from the Bible, not sermonic reinterpretations. When I'm sitting with commentaries open and the Bible open in front of me week in and week out, that's the kind of thinking running through my mind in preparing each and every sermon for this church as we gather in this place. I hope that encourages you not to dismiss the idea of God-instituted pastoral authority and yet at the same time, cautiously examining the scriptures like the Bereans to see if these things are so. I love this quote from Derek Thomas in his commentary on Acts 17. He says, the holiest sounds of a worship service are the frequent rustling of the leaves of scripture when the word of God is being expounded and individual Christians are examining for themselves the truth of what is being said. Love that, the rustling of the leaves of scripture in the assembly of the saints. There's this noble combination in Berea of, of eagerly receiving and cautious examining, of, of accepting and assessing. It's, it's not noble to receive the word absent of discernment, nor is it noble in the name of cautious examination to never eagerly receive the word. There's a both and on which that declaration of nobility is founded. And so I would bring a question to us this morning. What's your tendency? Is it to... Receive the word eagerly from others without any sort of purposeful examination on your part? Or is it to, to scrutinize such that an eager receiving of the word rarely happens in your life? Eager receptivity coupled with cautious discernment is a beautiful thing, a noble thing, in fact. Thirdly, notice that there's this response that happens in this gathering of, of the Berean people. Many of them therefore believed, not, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. There's a, there's a response to the preached and examined word of God. In the case of the Berean Jews, a coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I would say this, if you're not a Christian, my ultimate hope for you this morning is that you would believe 
that you would eagerly engage with the preaching of God's word and that you would examine these things on your own time to see if they're so and that your eager examination and your eager receiving would lead to a belief and a trust in Jesus Christ as your savior and king. And for those of us Christians, I'm not sure how we manage in the American South to create a culture where the more Bible you know, the more arrogant and unrepentant you are. I don't know what that is because that's just not here in scripture. My hope would be that our time in the scriptures wouldn't lead to unrepentant haughtiness, but rather the, the preaching and examining of the word of God, that we would see that as a means of God's grace and kindness meant to lead us to, to faith and repentance. Not only hearers of the word obtaining more knowledge, but believers and doers of the word, both informed and transformed. We're told in closing out this morning's passage in verse 13, it says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This morning's passage closes with more of the same persecution and hostility that we've seen throughout the book of Acts, so intense on this occasion that Paul actually has to leave town, headed for Athens, where we'll see yet again another story of, of God's power and grace on display next week. Crazy story. But in closing this morning, something came to mind for me. The thing that, that intrigues me about this morning's passage is that if you were around last week, Acts chapter 17 lacks both the sentimentalism and the humor of chapter 16. There are no personal stories of conversion, like those of Lydia, the tormented slave girl, the Philippian jailer. There's no humor like that associated with Timothy's missionary training, to put it kindly. Right, this morning's passage simply presents us with two crowds of people with starkly different responses to the gospel, which I think invites us in. I think it invites us in to wrestle with the question, with which of these crowds do I identify most? Both incredibly passionate in their response, right? Both clinging to that which they hold precious. For one, it's the status quo, a fighting for self-preservation and power and comfort and control. For the other, the word of God and the gospel of God, a clinging to the preciousness of scripture and ultimately the God that it reveals. For most of us, I can certainly say this for myself, it's probably not hard to identify with both crowds to some degree, right? To which I say this, thanks be to Jesus Christ for dying for the resistant Thessalonian in all of us. He bore the sins associated with our clinging to the right side up way of the world in his body on the tree too. Isn't that good news? And not only that, he died for our sins of apathy and neglect, our failure to love the scriptures like we should, our failure to believe the gospel like we should. You ever sat with the Bible and thought, I wish I felt more here. I wish my heart wasn't so cold and apathetic. Christ died for that too, hallelujah. Gospel is such good news. 
My prayer this morning is that we would all be overwhelmed with the kindness and grace of God in Christ Jesus and that that kindness of the Lord would lead us to repentance, would be the fuel of our repentance as we turn from living for our own self-preservation, as we turn from living for our own comfort and control and the misery and jealousy and rage that accompany those kind of efforts and that we would cling more and more with white-knuckled grit to the precious word of God and, and the wondrous gospel of God. And that we'd find ourselves more and more happy, as strange as it sounds, for God to turn our lives and our families and our cities upside down if it means that he's more glorified in us and we're more satisfied in him.